Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. And this is our last episode before we pack up the studio here in Vancouver and head off to Warsaw, Poland for GFN 2023, the 10th anniversary of the Global Forum on Nicotine. And we're excited to be going for many reasons, but I think the most important is getting to spend some face time with guests on this show. And one of the people we always look forward to meeting in person is Clive Bates, tobacco control policy expert and former director of Action on Smoking and Health UK. Clive, it's great to see you. Are you looking forward to GFN this year? Uh, Brett, I am totally looking forward to it. I always look forward to it. It's a, it's a, it's a standing fixture in my ca- calendar. I get so much from it. Uh, I learn so much from the presenters. I learn so much from the conversations in the margins. It's a, it's a great event. It's really good. Yeah. Let me ask you, how often have you attended? I'm pretty sure I have a 100% track record and I've been to all of them uh, so far, including, well, including the uh, on- online ones during COVID and the, and the hybrid one in Liverpool. So I have a I have 100% track record. Um, and I go, I go not because I'm forced to go, but because actually I find it very worthwhile. Um, in particular, I, the emphasis is very much and has increased over the years on consumers and consumer insight. And it's a great place to meet the consumer advocates and the the sort of experts on what the users of these products and essentially the beneficiaries of tobacco harm reduction actually think and feel about everything. And to be honest, if you're not interested in that, then I don't see how you can do your job in tobacco control or public health. Um, You know, you really ought to be curious and hungry for those insights. And that's why I find the conference so useful. You know, often Clive, it kind of feels that tobacco control doesn't see smokers. The smoker is kind of invisible in a way. Um, And so it would be really harder for them to even see vapors uh, in terms of their purview. Well, look, I, I agree with that. I, I think, um, I, I think, you know, having, um, you know, started my career in public health in uh, as as director of action on smoking and health. I was very conscious that we didn't really have anything to do with smokers other than see them as um, an enemy. And it was partly they they were organised by to the extent they were organised they were organised by the tobacco industry and really functioned as a front group with the interests primarily of the tobacco industry to the fore. Um, and you know, couldn't really kind of, you know, and there was also, I think in, in, in our business, in tobacco control, there's also quite a strong, um, non-smokers rights current in there, which is different to the public health. I mean, I see myself as someone who's engaged in public health and concerned about cancer, heart disease, and so on. But if you're a non-smokers rights, what you were really concerned about was, somebody smoking near you in a plane, in a restaurant, in a pub or something, and being really fed up with that and wanting to drive smokers out of the public spaces so that you could have clean air or at least drive the smoking out of public spaces. So that, by definition, put those interests at at, at loggerheads with each other and often created conflict. Then you've got the whole sort of anti-corporate um anti-tobacco industry thing which runs deep in tobacco control and that just 
basically sees the industry and its customers, sees the industry as a predator and its customers as sort of gullible sort of fools, if you like, or victims uh, that, that have been sort of trapped by the industry. So again, there's not much room for empathy there either. Clive, let me just ask, it almost sounds like you're describing that tobacco control considers smokers and now vapors as the useful idiots of big tobacco. That, that's off. I think it's very common to see that narrative and it's very common for vapors, um, uh, you know, people who are active online or, or campaign to be accused of being shills. So not, not, not even useful idiots, just sort of, you know, hacks and shills and paid uh, accomplices. Um, a famous Australian activist refers to people as quizlings. Um, which is a, a term, uh, a, a disparaging term used in Europe for Nazi collaborators. So you, you can get a sense of the um, uh, of the, the sort of mood there that, that was coming from tobacco control towards uh, smokers and, and, and vapors. And I, I've concluded, uh, you know, I didn't think this way when I was director of ASH, but I do now, that your, your whole process of public health and tobacco control needs to proceed through um, a mixture of empathy and humility um, that you you know you need to understand where people are coming from and kind of just walk in their shoes a bit um, and, and try to see how they see the world before you condemn them condemn what they're doing and try to make it impossible for them to solve the problem in the ways that they have solved it um, and I, I, you know, come to see that whole enterprise as incredibly arrogant and a massive antidote to that is going to conferences like GFN. And I wish, to be honest, a lot more of them did because then they would think differently about what is actually the course, the core subject of their work. And the fact that they don't, to me, is unprofessional. Yeah, and that is uh, one of my next questions is, does ta tobacco control attend? Uh, these GFN events? Well, you, actually, you get a few people. Uh, you get people who are interested in harm reduction um, that will come. You don't get as many as you used to because, you know, they've, they've, people have recoiled because they have like, uh, they have more industry people there giving the industry perspective and so on. Uh, and they, you know, they, they um, have an industry exhibition uh, where people bring the latest technology along and display it and everything. So rather than think about why they're doing that and why it's important to understand all that stuff and how it's not basically harmful, they've just gone into the usual sort of reflex, which is, well, that's industry. We can't be seen anywhere near that, which I think is a shame. And it's they lose. Um, the conference loses. But it's their loss is the bigger. To me, the conference is still incredibly valuable and informative. And I'll say this. It helps to have the industry people there because you get their insights as well. You don't have to believe them and you should always be skeptical about them, but you shouldn't shut them out. In a way, the Global Forum on Nicotine um, is treated um, as harshly as any other industry group would be treated uh, by, say, the WHO. They're kind of shunned. Uh, people are not allowed to attend, for, you know, for the sake of, you know, somehow being 
tainted by industry? Yeah, I mean, they, they do that. I mean, it is it is ridiculous because if you are in public health, and especially if you're an academic, your job is curiosity. You know, your your job is to understand things. And you don't do that by excluding yourself from insights that you can get from a conference like that. It's a completely stupid way of doing things. It's like it would be like trying to do anthropology without ever visiting the, the the people that you're studying. You know, it'd be like trying to do it from a distance or from a from a helicopter or something. You know, it'd be just it's a ridiculous way of doing it. And I think I, I think it's it's not it's not because they actually have a, a credible objection to the the way the industry uh, works in these things and it, it basically I'm all for it they work quite constructively it's because they don't want to hear these messages um, because these messages that they get from consumers and get from the industry is that the world is changing and moving on without them you know, this is this is where they would come face to face with their own impending irrelevance and the fact that people can now solve the problems that they have spent decades and sometimes entire careers working on without their involvement and in a way that they don't like. You know, it's it's hard to express this, but the, the harm reduction approach and the mood music that you get at GFN is totally countercultural for the tobacco control community. Okay, their modus operandi, their playbook is primarily one of punishment with taxes, coercion, restrictions, stigma, uh, you know, defining you as a, a patient and controlling you. I mean, the word is tobacco control and control is essentially what they do. It does what it says on the tin. Now you flip to the mood and the modus operandi that you will be hearing about at GFN. And it's like, well, consumer empowerment, consumer choice, it's people taking control of their own health at their own initiative, at their own expense, by interacting with private sector, entrepreneurial, innovative companies, producing products that solve the problem that those people want solving, i.e. the health and welfare and stigma, in a way that works for them. And there is really not very much room for your average tobacco control activist or academic in there. Of course, some are very curious about that process and, you know, well done to them. They are at least thinking about the field they're working in and, and you know, whether it can be used to solve really difficult problems like smoking in mental, um, you know, communities of people with mental health problems, smoking amongst homeless prisoners, veterans, you know, all, all the, you know, all the really tough nuts to crack. Those are the academics doing the most interesting work. But the people who just don't like it all, there's nothing for them uh, at those meetings, other than other than threat and challenge. It's really about uh, forced behavior. Is really the point for them, isn't it? That I would say there's a model of tobacco control, which is, uh, I put this crudely, but we will punish you, we will hurt you, we will restrict you uh, until you do what we say, which is to quit, and then we'll let the pain stop. You know, so we, we don't care about your welfare. We're going to hit you with a massive tax bill. 
you know, in, in you know, hundreds of dollars, thousands maybe of dollars per year for, you know, for being a smoker. And our offer to you is that if you do as we tell you, we'll make that pain stop. And we call that the best tobacco control policy. That is basically the premier Rolls-Royce tobacco control policy that everybody agrees with. We hurt you like hell in your pocket, in your household budget, in what is almost always a poor household. And when, when you stop and do what we say, then we'll make the pain stop. When you get down to it, that's the model. And that, I think, connects uh, very strongly with a kind of belief that I have, and that is that uh, nicotine vaping removes the harm that comes from smoking cessation. And that harm that comes from smoking cessation is everything that tobacco control and that you just laid out. Vaping, you can just step right out of that. It's really interesting. I mean, when, when, when we talk about harm reduction, we, we should take a holistic view of harm, which isn't, you know, um, it's not just the cancer, cardiovascular, respiratory disease um, that you get from smoking gets dramatically reduced. Of course it does. Okay. But remember, we, we there's a whole lot of other aspects. So how bad do you feel about, you know, being in a place and smoking and everybody staring at you or feeling... You're feeling stigmatized or antisocial. Then, so there's so there are those welfare aspects to harm. Then there's a whole range of harms that are deliberately induced by policy. Okay, so I mentioned taxation is one. That is a great big rod to beat you with. And the deal is that when when you stop smoking, we'll stop beating you with that rod. Even though you're probably already very poor to start with, we're going to use financial pain to get our way. So that's another form of harm. And it hits the household budget and it hits the kids in the household as well as taking food off the table and so on. Um, <clears throat> then you've got the campaigns, which are, are often referred to as denormalization. So we, people will glibly trust that but we're denormalizing smoking or tobacco. But what they mean is they're stigmatizing it. Denormalization and stigmatizing are one and the same thing. They're just one is a more respectable, respectful way of saying the other. Um, so those harms count for a great deal. And then, then you've got then you've got other more subtle harms, such as, well, let's call it a loss of autonomy. Uh, what if what if you liked smoking, even, even if I disagree with you and I don't like it, or you don't like it, or I've never tried it. You are entitled to want that and like it if you want to. And I am pushing you to stop it. Um, there's the material aspects, uh, you know, uh, welfare loss associated. Uh, and this is more controversial, but the feeling of loss and craving and withdrawal and then loss of something that people experience when they quit smoking. Well, vaping helps with all of that. It deals with those sorts of harms. You've not lost something, even if, even if you think, if you'd never had it, you wouldn't miss it. The fact that you've had it and it's been taken away or you've had to, you felt you've had to stop it, then you still feel as though you've lost something. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, uh, Brent, but what I'm getting at is there are a wide range of harms and feelings that people get when they are engaged with tobacco control and engaged with protecting their own health in their own way. And... That's where I would go. That's why conferences like like the GFN and there are others 
where you can talk to people and really get a feel for what they feel about it. Um, why, you know, ask a question in the academic community. Why do you like, why do people like nicotine? And you'll get a really dumb answer. Like, you know, well, because they because they were hooked on nicotine when they were a child by a predatory tobacco industry, and now they're addicted and they can't stop. Okay. There's much more to it than that. I've never been a nicotine user. I've never been a smoker or a vapor. Don't intend to start. However, I feel obliged to listen to people at GFN, at the other conferences, and find out what they think they are doing and why they do it. And you get, you know, it helps me relax. Uh, I feel stress and anxiety controls my mood. I can concentrate better, calms me down. All this stuff, uh, goes well, you know, certain times of day, I really like to have it. It breaks up the boredom of life. All of these things give a much richer picture of what's actually going on and helps you to understand why there is even a demand for nicotine. Um, you know, why that demand is like, frankly, why that demand is likely to persist, not going to die out. Because when people explain why they're doing it, it kind of makes sense. Clive, at this year's Global Forum on Nicotine, you'll be hosting a rather unique plenary pre-conference session titled The Big THR Conversation. How can the last decade influence and inform the next? What's this session all about? I think the idea is is to is to it, it was kind of like a bit of a nostalgia trip you know there's been a, people uh there's some people who've been in the room who've been on a journey um you know maybe 15 years now um the the early adopters um they've been through evolving events um you know whether, whether it was the attempt at medicalization um, in the EU that vapors saw off, uh, whether it's the deeming rule in the United States, whether it was the crazy stuff going on in Australia, um, whether it was the bullish policy followed by cautious policy followed by thoughtful policy in Canada. Um, you know, so people have been through a lot. There's also been an incredible evolution in the products um, you know, any science that was done on the products in 2012 tells you very little about the products that are available now. It would be like doing, um, you know, science on a Ford Model T to understand the latest Tesla. You, you just wouldn't. You could. There's nothing to learn there. Um, you've also you've also got um, uh, incredible development of scientific insight. So stuff that we stuff that we've learned, uh, and with that, the arguments that go with um, you know with the public policy discourse. So in in two thousand and you know thirteen, we weren't really talking about flavors very much. Um, we were, but we are now. Um, we weren't talking about disposables. Uh, we we had cigar like product we've kind of come full circle because we had cigarette products then we then people got into more rechargeable now we've got the disposables um you know uh kind of mass market and so on so i think the the idea is to sort of synthesize all of these changes that we've seen in 
different areas of the landscape, whether it's, you know, technology, policy, uh, big, you know, big events in history, um, the scientific understanding, the landmark reports, and, and, and rather than just have a, a like a nostalgia fest about what's happened over the last 15 years, to try to think what we can learn from that about what to do over the next 10 to 15 years um, and what kind of threats are coming up and why they are like they are. You know, what have we, what have, what have the tobacco control community revealed about themselves? What, what is WHO revealed about itself? What do we know about, what, what have we learned from the kind of campaigns that the Bloomberg complex runs? You know, those, those are all quite interesting things to digest at this point, to try and understand what the underlying motivations are and what to do about them in future. Also, where where is the where is the optimistic story? I'm pretty optimistic. I have to say, I'm pretty optimistic. Um, why? Why why is there something to be optimistic about? That would be good to draw out. Now, I've been told that what will make this session a bit unique is the participation from the audience. Tell us about that. One of the best sessions I've I've been in uh, at, uh, at, at GFN. <laughs> this is a trade secret here, was uh, I knew that the week after I was going to have to write a briefing for a consultation on flavours. And I thought, OK, uh, a really cool way to do this uh, at the at, uh, at the GFN would be to crowdsource that from the audience. Uh, and I tell you, Brent, it was amazing. Uh, it, the clarity the range of issues, the insights and everything. And, um, you know, I just thought I just thought it was a brilliant way of doing it. It, it, it requires um, it does require some skillful moderation because you don't want people to go off on tangents and, you know, make sort of lengthy speeches or whatever. Um, so you. The, the art of it is to draw out of the audience the collective knowledge, you know, the wisdom of the crowd, if you like. Um, and the wisdom of the crowd in the GFN audiences is massive. OK, it's there to be taken. It's it's um, it's a mixture of technical knowledge of, of science, but mostly tacit knowledge from experience or or battle ready knowledge from you know the, the fights they've been in 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 disputes over, over policy and politics and if you can get that out of people and get it into some kind of orderly fashion i think it's very powerful i don't know quite how we're going to play it um i mean my approach to this it's probably the most difficult chairing thing uh i i will have done at gfn and probably ever uh but it will be to try to help the audience find its own sense of direction um, in, in this by, you know, really challenging them in a way with the answers that I'm getting and then going to people who can address those challenges. And one of the things I understand is that's going to happen is that members of the audience are going to come up on stage and share short anecdotes uh, connected to what you're talking about. So 
if anybody's out there watching this, you know, and you're coming to the actual event, you better start preparing now. There's a couple of things you better be. One, one is prepared, two is concise, and three is interesting. Okay. <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna be very tough because as the chair in these in, in these sessions, you're really there on behalf of the audience, the rest of the audience, those who aren't speaking. And you, you're trying to get people to be as interesting and to the point as possible. So I'm uh, very much uh, looking forward to getting people up on stage. But I, I really want to see people at their very best. And at their very best is, you know, concise, interesting and to the point. Um, and give people give people something memorable to take away, write down, Give me something to put in the synthesis that we'll produce at the end of it. If you could provide some specific advice to what they might want to share on stage, what would that be? My advice to to, to vapors always in um, in politics is to share your experience, okay, uh, and share what's happened to you. That's probably not what we need here. Uh, what we really need is how did you share your experience? How did you? How did you make it land? Okay, what are the what are the arguments and uh, that you have found persuasive, and and how did you how did you make them? Um, when you when and if you use science, what are the arguments that that you found compelling, and that people, um, even though they're good arguments, people either didn't understand or didn't like? Um, what what have you seen by way of change in the in, in the environment and why do you think that change has occurred um why why do you think um people who disagree with you disagree and and what is their motivation you know and and if if you can go further how do you think that could be changed you know what are we dealing with out there so those are the sort of things i i want to get into uh i i don't i don't want um you know i feel like a long account of a, a specific you know political battle what i want is the is to get into the insight that you that you drew from that and something that we can capture that's of general interest um and something if possible that has a forward-looking view it almost sounds like it, taking stock uh, and building the going forward battle plan. It's exactly that. Yeah, I, I think it's a chance to take stock, learn what we've learned, understand what's changed and why. Uh, what have, what are our deepest insights into into the direction of travel, uh, the nature of the opposition, uh, the, the 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 nature of the allies as well, for that matter. Um, what's you know what what's worked what's hasn't worked um what kind of environment would would be acceptable what do, what do people think are the right kind of um let's say compromises between somewhere between complete laissez-faire and uh, a total prohibition there is a kind of sweet spot of optimal regulation what should what do we know now that should be in that, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I, these are just my thoughts. I, I'm there to get everybody's thoughts in the room. But what I want is insights rather than 
uh, accounts of circumstances. Uh, I want to try, what can we all take away from the experience you had or the insights that you used in a particular situation? Live, looking at the whole conference, the organizers have placed an emphasis on science in the main program this year. Is this an underserved topic? I think getting to the, 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 the question is, what is the right science? Um, you know, I mean, there's a huge amount of science out there that isn't worth the paper it's written on. Um, it, it's just, you know, it's full of errors and mistakes and everything. Um, so what is the what is the informative science? And, and what what is the the subset of scientific insight that is most relevant to you know, consumers and the evolving policy landscape for, um, you know, for, uh, for for future nicotine products. And, you know, the basic claim of reduced harm, how how robust is that? And, and, uh, and why is it? And why do people, why do people make out when they find a few, um, you know, picograms of um, cobalt in it, that the product is somehow deadly, you know, so, so there's that. You've then got you've then got is are these products displacing smoking or adding to the total amount of nicotine used? You've got the what are our insights into into disadvantaged populations, um, poor socioeconomic status, um, mental health, uh, people with mental health problems, and so on. What can we learn about them? Then there's the whole story about nicotine, and some of the best sessions I've had. Um, have been at GFN on why do people use nicotine? Um, you know, it's, it's an amazingly underserved question in the tobacco control literature um, and, and get, gets to understanding what the basic demand function is. And if you don't understand the demand function, you really don't know what you're dealing with as a phenomenon or how or what the appropriate regulation is. So I think there's a there's a there's a lot of stuff like that. The kids thing. What have we learned about young people? It's just a, a brilliant paper just out um, that went through all the arguments about kids. Uh, and of course, it's much more complicated than the campaign for tobacco free kids narrative, which is just basically for simpletons. And you can tell they're not serious about kids, by the way, because there's no subtlety about kids. You know, what what about the disadvantaged kids? The kid the kids whose parents smoke, the kids whose parents and their their parents and their parents have smoked for the last five generations. Um, the kids were in estates and housing projects where nearly everybody smokes. What about them? What about the kids who have very high substance use behaviors, you know, likely to be using cannabis or other drugs? What about them? Um, you know. If you're really interested in the welfare of kids, that's where you'd be. That's the stuff you'd be interested in, in particular, rather than using the transient, frivolous, experimental behaviours of largely middle-class kids to create a massive stick to beat adults with, which is essentially what they are doing. Um, so, yeah, I think you've got to be discerning about the scientific insights that you want and uh, and and... Also, inconvenient truths. You know what? What? Uh, what? Are, what are we learning that is disturbing 
if anything. What what do we think about things like um, disposables and waste? What how big is that waste problem? Is it a big problem? Uh, it's it's bigger it's bigger than not having them, but is it big compared to other forms of waste? You know what? So those are the interesting questions that would be you know on the mind of anybody thinking about policy. Then these mega ideas, you know. Um, should you do a smoke-free generation, reduce nicotine in cigarettes, um, close down most of the retailing um, outlets for smoking? Uh, should you do plain packaging for vapes? Should you reduce the nicotine concentration or use nicotine flux as a way of regulating vapes? Should you ban flavors other than tobacco flavor? You know, the, there's lots of science around those issues and that could keep a whole conference going for months. Clive, as we've been discussing, you are hosting a plenary pre-conference session titled The Big THR Conversation, How Can the Last Decade Influence and Inform the Next? At the Global Forum on Nicotine, the annual conference on safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction. GFN 2023 starts on June 21st and runs to the 24th. If you can't attend, you can watch online. Go to gfn.events to register. Clive, last question for you. Why are you optimistic about the future of tobacco harm reduction? I think that there is just a basic, uh, steady movement of people, markets, companies that basically are engaged in the process of creative destruction and uh, diffusion of innovation. Okay, so in this massive nicotine market of over a billion people, there is going to be whether the regulators, the tobacco control activists or WHO like it or not, there is going to be a technology change. And that that happens because it's in the interests of consumers and producers to change the technology. And those processes are incredibly difficult to resist. They, 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 you can slow them down with dumb regulation. You can uh, derail them to some extent with misinformation, but underlying problem for them is that you cannot stop them. And, and those processes are because people want to uh, improve their health, safety, welfare, well-being at their own expense, on their own initiative, while doing something they want to do, which is to use the recreational stimulant nicotine. That's the underlying process that's happening. And I think of it like tectonic plates, you know, uh, the, the land mo slow moving land masses. You can't stop that happening. You can you maybe maybe they can get in the way with the deeming rule or a TPD or something, but they won't stop the fundamentals changing. All they can do is slow it down. So I wish they didn't slow it down, but they won't stop it. 